Greetings. This is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will look at Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Our last session ended with this statement from Peter when he was describing the work of God in the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. He said, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Thus the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ began in earnest. And we will now begin uh, to look at some passages that will mark the transition from the ministry from the Jews to the Gentiles and from the ministry of Peter to the ministry of Paul. In our passage today, we read about what had been taking place during the past 10 years since Philip had been martyred. You will remember that in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, the church had been scattered due to severe persecution. Let me read verses 1 and 4 from chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death, Stephen's death, At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Well, let's turn now to Acts chapter 11, and and let's read our passage before us today, beginning with verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the word and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord is upon them, And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. 
Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Thus they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. God had been not remained silent during these years, but rather he was at work through his church bringing a message to people who had not yet heard about Jesus. Dr. John Stott helps us to understand. Luke now shows how the outward movement of the gospel expanded in two ways, geographical and cultural. Geographically, the mission spread north beyond Judea and Samaria as far as Phoenicia, corresponding to Lebanon today, the island of Cyprus, and the city of Syria Antioch. Culturally, the mission spread beyond Jews to Gentiles. A key city for the spread of the gospel message was Antioch. This would soon become the home base for the church instead of Jerusalem. Dr. Warren Wearsby provides us with an excellent description of the city. He writes, Antioch was the capital of Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. With a population of half a million, Antioch ranked as the third largest city in the Roman Empire following Rome and Alexandria. Its magnificent buildings helped give it the name Antioch the Golden, Queen of the East. The main street was more than four miles long, paved with marble, and lined on both sides by marble colonnades. It was the only city in the ancient world at that time that had its lights, its streets lighted at night. A busy port and a center for luxury and culture, Antioch attracted all kinds of people, including wealthy, retired Roman officials who spent their days chatting in the baths or gambling at the races. With its large cosmopolitan population and its great commercial and political power, Antioch presented to the church an exciting opportunity for evangelism. Antioch was a wicked city, perhaps second only to Corinth, writes James Kelso. Here where all the gods of antiquity were worshipped, Christ must be exalted. Not only was an effective church built in Antioch, but it became the church that sent Paul out to win the Gentile world for Christ. Added to this description is uh, the following uh, observations from Dr. Stott. He writes, its population estimated to at least 500,000 was extremely cosmopolitan. It had a large colony of Jews attracted by Seleucus's offer of equal citizenship and Orientals too from Persia, India, and even China, earning it another of its names, the Queen of the East, since it was absorbed into the Roman Empire by Pompeii in 64 BC and became the capital of the imperial province of Syria, to which Cilicia was later added, its inhabitants included Latins as well. Thus, 
Greeks, Jews, Orientals, and Romans formed the mixed multitude of what Josephus called the third city of the empire, after Rome and Alexandria. The reason why I incorporated these quotes is because I want us to understand what the scattered believers encountered as they fled from Jerusalem. You will note that they did not go to a safe place, but rather into the very heart of paganism. And there they set down roots and began to tell and teach about Jesus. I'm reminded of something C.T. Studd once said when he considered the high calling of being a witness for Christ. He said, Some like to dwell within the sound of church and chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I find that statement very challenging and thought-provoking. Well, Cyprus and Cyrene were also recipients of the diaspora, and these faithful believers talked and taught about Jesus to the Hellenists there. Their response to this ministry, ministry is recorded in verse 21, which says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Well, word got back to the apostles in Jerusalem about what was what uh, was happening among the Hellenists and Gentile communities, and the apostles and elders wanted to confirm the accuracy of these reports. So they sent Barnabas, a man who we met earlier in chapter 4. If you remember, the church had nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because that is exactly who he was and what he did. He was a generous and righteous man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. He was willing to stick his neck out when when Saul showed up, even though everyone else feared him, and he encouraged the believers in the Spirit and in the Word of God. The Greek term for encouraging is parakalei and can carry the idea of encouragement, comfort, help, or even strong urging and counsel. This is exactly who Barnabas was and how he ministered to the church. Well, verses 23 and 24 of our passage share a deeper insight into his ministry when he arrived in Antioch. It says, When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. How the people responded to the testimony of Jesus. I find it so exciting to read of the powerful ways the Holy Spirit was working in the world during this time of world history. The church was so young and not that far removed from the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. 
The New Testament scriptures had not yet been written. And so the outward verbal ministry of those who were scattered was vitally important. They had to teach a Gentile audience about the Old Testament scriptures as well as about Jesus. They had to encourage one another and support one another, for the entire world was hostile to the God of Israel, and Israel was hostile to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you feel a little bit alone in your ministry of being a witness, whether it be in the workplace, in a school, among your unbelieving friends, or even in your own family. But let me encourage you, you are not alone. God has given to you his Holy Spirit. He has given you the testimony of his word. And he has given to you members of his church, his body. And although we may not know one another personally, we are united through Jesus Christ. We are family. And you are not alone. There's a song that I'm reminded of. It is entitled, Little is Much When God is in It, and was written by Kitty Suffield in the early part of the 1900s. Listen to the words, for I think that there is a message of encouragement for you in them. The words are this. In the harvest field now ripened, there's a work for all to do. Hark, the master's voice is calling to the harvest, calling you. Does the place you're called to labor, and does the place you're called seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it, for he'll not forsake his own. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. And when the conflict has ended and our race on earth is run, he will say, if you've been faithful, Welcome home, my child. Well done. For little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Well, let's continue with our passage in Acts. And we read that Barnabas realized that the work in Antioch was growing and flourishing, and he knew that he needed help. So he traveled to Tarsus in order to enlist Saul's help in this ministry. Paul had been in Tarsus for about ten years now. And if you remember, the apostles had sent him back home because his life was being threatened. We don't know specifically what he'd been doing during that time, but we do know that he was actively engaged in ministry. Warren Wearsby observes that 
It may have been during this period that he founded the churches in Cilicia. We read about that in Acts chapter 15, verse 23 and 41, and also in Galatians 1, 21. And that Paul also experienced some of the sufferings listed in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28 during this time. And it is also during this time that he most probably dis was disinherited by his family, as indicated in Philippians 3.8. Saul agreed to join Barnabas in Antioch, and for the next year they worked side by side, teaching all who would listen about Jesus and about God as revealed in the scriptures. They were a powerful team. And God blessed that ministry abundantly. Verse 26 tells us that it was during this time, while they were in Antioch, that the believers in Jesus Christ were first called Christians. Now, the name Christian actually means Christ's ones. The I-A-N at the end of the word means belonging to the party of. In other words, belonging to Christ. I like that. One commentator adds this. The term Christian was invented by the non-Christian culture of Antioch. One of the earliest extra-biblical occurrences of the term comes from a remark made by the emperor Nero. In whatever the case, the believers in Christ were becoming an identifiable group, distinct from Judaism, and, at least in Antioch, primarily Gentile in composition. And although it was meant to be derogatory, it has become a title by which a believer identifies himself or herself. For those who love Jesus, we carry the name with pride, because we carry the name of Jesus with us. But sadly, for many, it has simply become a name that identifies one as someone who is not a pagan. One pastor has chosen to separate himself from that latter group, and he describes himself as a Christ follower whenever he is asked. And I like that. It makes sense to me. And it once again sets us apart from all others who would use religion and even Christianity as an easy ticket into heaven. And they don't stop to realize that there is only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Jesus himself declared this to be so. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That verse is found in John 14.6. Well, our passage today ends with a report from a prophet, Agabus by name, who came from Jerusalem to Antioch with a message from God. He said that there would soon be a great famine throughout the known world. In response to this message, the disciples in Antioch pledged to send relief to the church in Judea. And this relief 
money and goods, were entrusted to Barnabas and Saul, who traveled back to Jerusalem with their gifts and offerings. Once again, we turn to our commentary to discover more about this prophecy and and the key role the believers in Antioch played in response to it. Warren Wearsby writes, The Spirit told Agabus that a great famine was soon to come, and it did come during the reign of Claudius Caesar, who reigned uh, between the years 41 and 54 A.D. The crops were poor for many years. Ancient writers mention at least four famines, two in Rome, one in Greece, and one in Judea. The famine in Judea was especially severe, and the Jewish historian Josephus records that many people died for lack of money to buy what little food was available. The believers could not stop the famine from coming, but they could send relief to those in need. I think that this is an important lesson for us. If God has blessed you and me, it is so that we can bless others. The Apostle Paul would later write the following instruction in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-11, through 11, and it reads this way, But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and decrease the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you who long for you, because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Yes, thank you, Lord God, for your indescribable gift, your blessed Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of salvation that we have received. Thank you for our redemption and adoption as sons and daughters of God. Thank you for the gift of your blessed Holy Spirit 
guaranteeing our inheritance. Thank you for your word, your counsel, your guidance, your help in times of trouble, your comfort in times of sorrow, your joy when we rejoice, and your peace, your perfect peace that passes all understanding because you are near. Thank you for your promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for your unfailing love and tender mercies and your great faithfulness day after day after day. Thank you, dear Lord, for the many ways that you have blessed our lives materially. Give us generous hearts to minister to others in need in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the gifts and offerings we bring we give, bring you glory, even as they minister to the needs of others. Heavenly Father, take our lives and use them for your glory and for your good purposes. Reveal to us the work that you would have us to do and empower us and embolden us to do that work until Jesus comes. We ask this in his most holy and precious name. Amen. Well, if you are finding these messages helpful and encouraging, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, please feel free to email me. My email address is BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. It's all just one word, Bible time with Jane at gmail.com. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. May God bless you richly, my friend.